Thank you for choosing On Mike with Jordan Rich, a podcast that celebrates conversation with creative people and often men and women of action. Today is a prime example. I have with me a Massachusetts police officer who is one of the heroes who stepped up during the manhunt for the Boston Marathon Bombers, Watertown Police Sergeant Jeffrey Pugilis, who retired a short while ago after 41 years and five months on the job. But as I say, Jeff is best known for engaging with two vicious terrorists behind the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing while he was off duty. You're about to hear the blow-by-blow details from the man who was there, the man that received a congressional badge of bravery for his heroic work during that event. It's an honor to have Jeff here with me in studio, a reminder that our first responders every day do so much for us. Retired Police Sergeant Jeff Pugilis joins us now on mic. Jeff, it's an honor to have you in the studio. It's a great honor to know you. And before we get started, uh, you must have had a very busy life growing up with, what, 10 siblings to yes, I deal did. with? Yeah, <laughs> seven brothers and three sisters. Uh, Watertown, Massachusetts. Let's talk about that town because it's not far from downtown Boston. Tight-knit community, very ethnically based. Uh, tell me about growing up. It had a small town feel to it, even though, uh, you know, it's four square miles. It has... Uh, about 35,000 people, mm-hmm. uh, but it has a small town feel. You know, at least it did until the last 10 years with all the development that's going on there now. Yeah, it's a, it's a very busy area, lots of uh, action on the streets in terms of traffic and so forth, but a very nice area. Your dad was a detective? Yes, he was, in Watertown. And was he the inspiration for you to follow in his footsteps to a uh, certain extent? Yes, he was. I always, uh, you know, I did a couple of times, you know, here and there, you'd ride in the cruiser with him and... I just thought it was uh, exciting, and it was a worthwhile profession, you know. It was, I, I remember one time I was, geez, I might have been around 12 or 13 years old, and my father uh, jumped in the Charles River in Watertown Square and pulled a woman out that had attempted suicide, and he saved her life. Mm. And, you know, and I remember three or four days later, there was a knock at our front door, and it was the woman's husband, and he wanted to thank my father. And, you know, my father says, just don't worry about it. I'm doing what I have to do. It's my job. You know, I'm glad that your wife is alive and she's okay. And the guy took his wristwatch off and handed it to my father. He says, I don't have anything, but I want you to have this. And my father wouldn't accept it. He didn't accept it. But But that that speaks to the public service uh, that so many give, uh, risking their own lives to do what your dad did and what you've done and, and your colleagues. Yes. It's a very noble profession. Before we get to police work and the Watertown story and all that, you were also in the military. And I met you uh, at an event, and we talked about this, and you showed me some pictures because we were talking about Germany where you were stationed. And when was that? Uh, before the fall of the wall or Before. I was, uh, I was in the Army from July of 74 until February of 78. And were you a young enlistee? Was that it? I was I, a month out of high school. Oh, man. And was that something that you had had in the back of your mind for a long time, or was it more spur of the moment? No. The, uh, in actuality, what happened is, is I was driving up Main Street in Watertown, and a classmate of mine was hitchhiking. So I pulled over, and his name was Kevin. And I said, Kevin, where are you going? Where do you need to go? And he said, I'm going up to Waltham to the recruiting office. I'm going to go in the Army. That was in April of 74. So I had an option. I, I could have uh, went into the trades, the Carpenters Union. I had a couple of brothers that were in the union, and they were pushing me. And I, that wasn't really for me. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so I thought about it as I was driving, and I said, I think I'll go in with you. Because I had decided that I had wanted to become a police officer at that mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. I was 17 years old. I turned 18 in May just at graduation time. So I went in, talked to the recruiter, and I told him I wanted to go into the military police, and I was going to go in for two years. So he says, well, you got to pass a test, you know, your uh, intelligence level, I guess, you know, they call it. And what was, what was I trying to think of the name? It was a GT score. Okay. That was what they called it. All right. And in order to go into a certain profession, you have to get a certain score to show that you have, the, I guess, the intelligence to do that profession. Right. Makes sense. So I, I said, okay, I, I'll go in. And she says, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be in the military police. He says, okay. And he says, well, he says, if you go in for three years, you can 
choose your profession as long as you pass the test, and where you want to go. Hmm. Now, I, was all, I always wanted to go to Europe and see Germany, so I decided to go in for three years instead of two. So I passed the test, and I went in July 8th, 1974. And the first, the first station was where? Was it Berlin? or Berlin, Germany. Mm. And this is uh, Cold War, primo Cold War time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Pre-Reagan even, I mean, so yeah, you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Jimmy, and, Jim, it was it Nixon resigned while I was uh, in basic training. Okay, then you had Gerald Ford. And Gerald Ford. Ford, and then Jimmy Carter. Well, now, because you wanted to be a police officer, it makes sense, be an MP, right? Get all kinds of extra training in in what would be your future career. Yes, I thought I thought of it as a resume builder. So where are you in Berlin? Are you near the wall at that time? Well, Berlin was divided. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it was broken down into four sections. After World War II. After World War II. The Russian section, the Soviet section, uh, which was where they put the wall up to divide the two Berlins, East and West Berlin. And then there was a British sector, an American sector, and a French sector. And they were all occupied by the different militaries. Our barracks was not right on the on the wall. However, uh, we had our checkpoint Charlie there. I only worked checkpoint Charlie twice. You showed me a picture that you still have on your phone of the Stasi. I guess the East Germans or maybe the Russians that was in the, the guard Germans. tower. Stasi was... agents or whatever in the guard tower, not too far right. away from you. Right. The the building I worked in it was a. First of all, everybody's heard of Checkpoint Charlie. Sure. <clears throat> but there were two other checkpoints. There was Checkpoint Alpha, which was on the border of East and West Germany, 110 miles outside of Berlin. It was a land route into Berlin. Then there was Checkpoint Bravo. If you were traveling to Berlin, you had to go through Checkpoint Alpha, drive 110 miles, go through Checkpoint Bravo as you entered the city and record that you arrived safely. And then Checkpoint Charlie allowed you to go into East Berlin itself. During that time, uh, you, you, sure, a lot of things happened, uh, but was there any of your interaction with the, the other side, so to speak, any trade-offs, anything that happened on the, on the border area, skirmishes, whatever? No, there were no skirmishes, but you could always tell how relations were going with the Soviet Union. We, we had, um, it was an eight by an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, and we called it a flag order, and it had the American flag in the top center. And the French had the same thing, and the British had the same thing. And in order to travel to Berlin, you had to have a flag order. And you had to take the person's ID and type exactly how it was on their ID. If you forgot a comma, they would turn the traveler around and send them back for new paperwork. If things were going well, if you forgot that comma, they'd let them go through. But if the relations were tense at the time... They'd be sending back the travelers. You know, it was, it was, <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Where were you when the wall came down? I mean, you must have been in uh, in Watertown serving as a police officer at that point, right? That's part of your job. You want to know where I was, believe it or not? Yeah. I was in Berlin chipping away at the wall. Oh, my goodness. So I was going to ask you what your reaction was when the wall came down. I did not know that. So tell me how that happened. Uh, my, my wife is from Germany. I met her while I was stationed there. Okay. I got out of the Army in 1978, and she came with me. So over the years, you know, she hadn't been home with her family for Christmas. So what I did is I uh, squared it away with the department, and I didn't use any vacation for the entire year, and I took it in December. And I went to Germany for six weeks. And you happened to be there at the right time? And I was in, I was in Germany, and her family is probably 140 miles outside of Berlin. But we drove up to Berlin when the wall was coming down, and we took our hammers and chisels. And we took some pieces of the wall. That is awesome. I did not know that as part of your bio, but I'm thrilled to, to know that. Yeah. Because you were there, you know, when that wall meant something. It meant lack of freedom or despair. And then all of a sudden, a chance to take a chip away from it. Great. Yeah. yeah. Good for you. Yeah, Good I have for you. It's, it's probably about that big, that the piece I have. Yeah, it's like having a slat of the seats at the old Boston Garden, but <laughs> right. more more meaningful even than that. So you you came back to the States, applied for uh, the police academy. Is that how it works? No, you have to take a civil service exam. Okay. A police entrance exam. And I took that. I got out, of, actually, I got out of the Army in February, and I took the exam, I believe, in April. I think it was April of 78. Okay. I passed the exam, 
And I got hired, I got interviewed in December of 79, and I started the police academy on January 7th, 1980. By the way, when you're in the police academy, does, does, do you have any say as to where you want to be, be a cop? I mean, you're a Watertown guy. You'd love to be in your hometown, but who decides that? Well, number one, the city or town that you reside in at the time you take the exam is put down as your number one choice. Okay. That's, that's number one. And then you get to pick uh, any other community that you may want to apply but what happens when the hiring process is residence preference first. So even if, say, I got a, a 90 on the entrance exam and you got a 95, I'm going to be ahead of you on the Watertown list if you're from Belmont or Newton or Waltham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So gotcha. the, there's a breakdown in civil service. It's disabled veterans, veterans, and then residents. We're learning a lot here, and we haven't even gotten to some of the really super-duper dramatic stuff that we will get to, but this is fascinating. To be a police officer back then, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the training today, but what's the difference in how things have evolved? Well, first of all, my academy was three months. Now there's six months, uh, so there's a big difference there. A lot more hours are uh, put into training police officers. You know, and you know, a lot of it is they, they st- you study law. You know, criminal law, sure. your rights of arrest, uh, traffic law. There's a lot of that is emphasized because you have to know the laws when you're out there on the road. So much to know and so many things to prepare for. The question I had uh, had to do with hiring back then and today. Today we know that there's a, a problem with the ranks and there are all kinds of reasons for that and we can understand why. What was it like back then? Was it difficult to get a job, or were there yeah. needs for applicants? No, there, there, were, there were so many people looking to get on the police department when I yeah. got on. I was hired. Watertown Police hadn't hired for a few years. There was different court cases going on at the time, um, affirmative action cases, uh, uh, women trying to get on the jobs, and there were height and weight requirements, and they were doing away with those. It was a, it was So Watertown hadn't hired in a couple of years, and they hired actually, at the time they had the department, was approximately 90 police officers. Now they're down to the low 60s. Mm. Um, but they hired 11 of us at the time, and I, was, I think I was number five that was hired out of the 11. You told me before we started taping today, Jeff, that you, for many of the years you were a police officer and you became a sergeant, you were the uh, arms instructor. The yes, I was a firearms instructor for approximately thirty-five or thirty-six years before so, I retired. So, back up a little bit. Obviously, in the army, you took firearms training. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Did you also train at home when you were a kid? I mean, as some people did. You know, once or twice a year, my father would take us up to New Hampshire to my grandparents' house, and we'd shoot a rifle up there. Yeah, you know, a twenty-two rifle. Yeah. That was about it. Okay, uh, but. It was, it was the military training that really taught me how to fire a rifle. In the course of your duties over the 35 years prior to 2013, how many times, if ever, had you fired your weapon in the call of duty? Never. Not unusual, right? No. It, most police officers can go through their entire career without ever having to fire mm-hmm. their, their uh, sidearm. What we would hope for all police officers, they never have to do that. They Correct. sadly do, but uh, I, I assumed it was either never or very few times. Yeah. I, no, no I, had, I had drawn my firearm mm-hmm. you know, several times over the course of my career, and fortunately, the uh, suspect always surrendered. In one case, the suspect didn't surrender. The suspect was a, a murderer, a terrorist, horrible, horrible incident. We're talking about the marathon bombing, 2013, April. And that week will live in everyone's memory here and around the world, but certainly here. So let's start with the day of the bombing. Uh, Watertown wasn't directly affected, although the marathon, doesn't the marathon sort of skirt Watertown? Yeah, it goes through Newton. It doesn't come into Watertown. Yeah, but you're nearby. You're not that yeah, far. Okay. Right. I was in Lowell. Uh, once a year, every year a police officer has to get 40 hours of training, updates on laws, mm-hmm. you know, defensive tactics. Uh, and so the Lowell Police Academy hosts that. It's four days, Monday through Thursday. And then the eight, other eight hours is with your department for firearms training. Okay. So I was actually that Monday, uh, Patriots Day, I was in class. And we had uh, they'd cut us loose around... I'm guessing around 2 o'clock, somewhere around there. And I had just gotten into my car, 
and I listen to BZ radio all the time. That's why my, my, my car radio is tuned to. I started it up, the radio kicked on, and I heard, well, there's been an explosion at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. And at first I thought it was just like a underground manhole uh, explosion. Gas yeah, explosion gas, electric, something. whatever. Right, sure. And so I said, oh, geez, that must be awful for the manhole to explode. And this is what mm. I was saying. They didn't say what kind of an explosion. They just said an explosion. So that was my first thought. Being a police officer, I dealt with many manhole explosions over mm. the years. And then, what was it, 30 seconds later, they said a second, uh, a second explosion. Then they decided that it was a bomb. So I remember I got, I got on the phone and I called my wife. I said, you might want to put the TV on. There's some kind of thing going on at the Boston Marathon finish line. So I hung up with her and I'm driving and I'm listening to the broadcast. And, you know, then they're saying that they thought it was bombs. And, you know, I went home. I didn't have to work because I was at the training. You know. What was the reaction of, of a local police department like Watertown? Did, was everybody placed on an alert of some kind? No, no, we weren't. Uh, not at that it, point. Yeah, not at that point. It was a, water, a Boston issue, yeah. you know. And uh, so, you know, I continued going to school on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday I went. And Thursday, after I finished school, of their training, I went in and I worked my regular four to midnight shift. It, bizarre set of circumstances that I was off duty when 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 the uh, when when the shooting in Watertown started. I worked four to midnight, and around nine o'clock, I think it was around nine o'clock, there was a uh, call at a, one of our local uh, bar rooms, restaurant bar room, and anytime there's a call at a bar in Watertown, a sergeant or the supervisor on duty has to investigate to see if there's been any liquor law violations. Okay. So I went down there, and I have to do a report on it one way or the other, whether it was or it wasn't a violation. Mm -hmm. So I went down, did my investigation. It turns out there was no violation. What it was is a drunk flagged down a taxi, and he happened to be standing in front of the bar, and the cab dried up, called us, and the guy had never even been in the place. He just happened to be <laughs> walking by, and he saw the cab. But you had to investigate anyway. Correct. Right. So now, now I have to do a report. So after that, I went into the station. And I was uh, writing my report, and I had my portable radio on. It's on my hip, and I hear about uh, the MIT officer, Sean Collier. Oh, horrible. And I, I'm saying, what a week this has been, you, mm. Know? Mm. you know, going on in Boston, and now a police officer gets killed. And so I, I continued typing my report, and you know, I'm not the greatest on a computer, but, you know, I'm typing it. And I finished it up, I don't know, around 11.15. The shift ends at 11.45. So I go out, and I bring my cruiser over to my car and I'm putting my gear in there and the dispatcher called me I answered and they said can you see the lieutenant before you leave okay no problem I go in what's up Ed he said I read your report it's all set I said okay good what's up he says well I think I might have deleted it <laughs> so I said Man, come okay. on you know I said, he says I, I approved it you know and, and I forwarded it like it's old but it's not there so he said do you think you can find it so I said I'm not great with computers. I'll see what I can do. But So that was around 11.40 for now, mm -hmm. and my shift ends in five minutes. So I said, I'll see what I can do. And so I go in, and I'm hunting, and I'm hunting, and I'm trying to enter the incident number again and see if it pops up. So I spent about 45 minutes or so, <laughs> and I said, we'll just let the computer guys try to figure it out tomorrow morning. Yeah. So with that, I went out to my car. Now, I live, I'm not, I'm not making it up. At midnight, I can be home in like a minute and a half from the police station. That's how close I live. Okay. So I smoke uh, cigarillos. Uh, you know, it's about the size of a cigarette, a small cigar. Mm -hmm. So I sat there and I, I lit one up and I said, well, I'll just sit here and smoke it. It'll never be done by the time I get home. So I'm listening to WBZ and I'm listening to my portable radio, the police radio. This, by the way, just to remind us, is the Thursday into, <coughs> into Friday. Correct. Of the same week of the bombing. Right? Correct. Okay. So I'm sitting there and I hear they're sending one of our officers, a female officer, the one that was on duty. They dispatch her to a house in Watertown to transport a woman to Cambridge who she believes she witnessed Collier's killing. So they have the female officer driving this woman to Cambridge. So on duty that night, there were four police officers and the sergeant. So there were five police officers working Watertown that night. So that one of them is out of the equation. So now they put out a broadcast that 
a car was carjacked in Cambridge, and it is being tracked in Watertown now. And they put that out. And I'm just sitting listening to this. And one of the and they said the car is on Dexter Avenue, in front of whatever number thirty. Just say thirty. Mm-hmm. And so one of the officers that was on, that was his patrol area said, uh, "I'm I'm a block away. I'll check it out." So they gave the vehicle description, the plate number, which was the Mercedes that was stolen from uh, Danny Meng. Right. Right. The uh, the Asian boy. We remember there. that very very clearly. Yes. Yeah. And as the officer approached. He's, say, traveling, he would have been traveling eastbound. No, the officer would have been traveling northbound, and in the, in the, in the, the, the Sanayev brothers were traveling in the opposite direction, and they went past each other. Mm. And as they went past each other, the officer looked over, and they made eye contact. So the officer went down, turned around, and got in behind them. They weren't driving fast. They were only doing about 15 miles an hour. And the officer followed him behind him. Any radio that, you know, I'm behind that vehicle, and the sergeant that was on duty at the time says, you know, don't light them up, which means put on the overhead lights. Yeah. Don't light them up yeah. until I get there. I'm, he was in Cooler Square, which was probably two or three blocks away. So the officer, Joe Reynolds, is following the vehicle, and then he turned left onto a street called Laurel Street. And about halfway down the street, uh, the Sanayev brothers pulled, uh, stopped the vehicle in the middle of the street, Tamlin got out and started walking up the street, emptying his pistol into the officer's cruiser. And Tamarin is the older one? He was the older brother, Yeah, yes. he's the one who we'll talk about in a minute, how you encountered him. So at this point, they've already killed the, the cop at MIT. Correct. So, and not to mention the murders of the, the innocents. And he's now shooting at one of your colleagues. Right, Joe, okay. Officer Joe Reynolds. Okay. Uh, and he's walking up the street, and, you know, Joe, fortunately, he had presence of mind. He put it in reverse create some distance, got on the radio, said they're shooting at me, they're shooting at me, the exact words, I don't remember what mm. he said. Um, and with that, Joe got out of the car and started returning fire. At about that point, the sergeant that was on duty, John McClellan, came around the corner and he took one through the windshield and it missed his head and it went through the headrest. Oh, Wow. Um, he has he has that headrest as a souvenir. I, I think he should. Wow, that's uh, that's cutting it close. Yeah, uh, and with that, you know, then all the radio really started going. You know, mm-hmm. they're shooting at us. Get us some help. And like I said, there was three police officers plus the sergeant on the street. Uh, so there was four of them, and you know, other officers had to come. So once I heard that, it was probably about two miles from the police station to where this incident was taking place. I I said I got to go up there. Before you continue, I was working at BZ. I had to get through the phalanx of of law enforcement to get to BZ because they had cordoned off a whole area. I think this was the Friday night after your incident for the younger one, yeah. right? But I remember so many armored vehicles, FBI, and here it is, you guys, the local constables having to deal with this. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Pick it up. Yeah, yeah, there was no nobody else other than Watertown officers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I remember going up. You, you must be familiar somewhat with Watertown Arsenal Street. Oh, absolutely. Right. So I, sure. I left the police station, which is up on Main Street, about halfway from between Watertown Square and the Waltham Line. Know it well. And it's around 1 o'clock in the morning. Or so. You're, by the way, are you still in uniform? You I'm gotten, still in uniform, but right. I'm in my own vehicle. Okay, okay. And I had a minivan at the time. <clears throat> <laughs> so, How American! <laughs> well, I had two young ki- two kids, so sure. Yeah, so, um, I'm going down Main Street and I'm listening to this. Now they're saying, you know, they're throwing some kind of explosives at us. They're throwing bombs, and so I go down Main Street. I'm probably doing 70, 80 miles an hour down Main Street, up Arsenal Street, and I got to School Street, which you have to turn left onto School Street. You know, Randy's car wash there. Yes, yes. So you, you take a left, and then you have to take a right, and it's basically right in that area there. So I'm going to take a left onto School Street, and I see two cruisers coming at me in the opposite direction. And now I'm in my own vehicle, and they were out-of-town police officers. So I literally hung out of my van window from my waist up, and I'm trying to flag them down so they know where to go because they're not familiar with Watertown. Sure. They just went right by me, right towards Watertown Square. 
So I continued driving. I get there. I parked around the corner from Laurel Street, and I got out of my vehicle. I put my vest back on because I had taken it off, my uh, bulletproof vest. That's not actually bulletproof. Bullet resistant is the mm. proper word. Um, and I go around the corner, and I see two of our police officers hunkered down in a front yard. Uh, taking cover behind a car, and I, the gunshots are going off. And as I actually, as I went around the corner, one of the pipe bombs went off, and it kind of like, whoa, what is that? You know. And then I went in, I come up behind the officers, and you know, side side, you get down, you know, they're shooting at us. Yep, yep, they are. Um, and I could see on the other side of the street, the sergeant that was on duty, he's behind a tree, and he's returning fire, and he's he's talking to them, saying, "Give it up, give it up," you know. And they're continuing to shoot. So I kind of looked to the left. He's, he's behind a tree. He's taking cover. And the other two officers that were patrol officers that are in front of me, one of them being Joe Reynolds, the other one, Miguel Colon. Uh, and it was kind of like a standoff. Nobody was advancing. Nobody's retreating. Mm-hmm. But there's continual gunfire uh, being exchanged. The neighborhood, a residential area. Yes, so it is. you're talking about people who probably ducking for cover in their houses. And man, what a what a way to wake up at one in the morning to yeah, that. Yeah. Oh. I'll tell you, talk about waking up to that. I'll tell you as, as I go. Um, so anyways, I evaluated it and I said, well, somebody's got to do something to try to bring this to a conclusion. So I made the decision to cut through backyards to come up on their flank, to come up on the side of them. So I cut through some backyards, went over a fence, went over another fence, went over a third fence. As I go over the third fence, you know, it's dark, so I'm looking down when I, I want to see where my feet are going. And as I come back up and I take my pistol out, you know, because I'm, mm. I'm, I'm reholstering each time I go over a fence. Of course. Um, I look up and there's a guy running through a backyard, the backyard I'm in. And... You know, I pointed my pistol at him, and I said, police, stop. And this guy just gone over a fence. Mm. He, he, it turns out the guy lived in that house. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and bullets, you know, he heard all the gunshots and everything else. So he looked out. He saw what was going on between the police and the bad guys. And he just decided to get out of his house. I just wanted, Thankfully, I didn't shoot him. Well, I just wanted to mention this because everyone who <laughs> sees movies, and that's everybody, thinks it's easy to have that kind of control. But the training kicks in, right? Because somebody else would have shot this guy just thinking, oh, he's out to get me. I, I've got to protect myself. Yeah. It's a split-second decision, though, you yeah. have to make. And my thought was I didn't know who he was. We found out later that he lived in that house. Yeah. And my thinking at the time was— even if he's one of the bad guys, we can look for him later. He's not a threat to the officers that are out there right Because he's now. not obviously shooting at anybody. He's and, running. He's running. You know, and I got on the radio and I said, you know, guy running through his backyard, guy running through the backyard went over a fence towards Cypress Street. That was the next street over where he was headed. You know, white T-shirt, long, dark hair. So like I said, that was something we could worry about later. So that's why I didn't shoot at him or anything. Well, that's that's sound decision making. Uh, training again, kicking in. So here you are. You're advancing on the flank, trying to get around to the back to get to this guy to stop him. Correct. So what I did is I, I went. I finished going through that backyard, and then I went up between the houses. And I came up. I was probably about twenty yards away from them. And there were two vehicles. They had the stolen vehicle, the Mercedes, the Mercedes in there. I don't remember if it was a Chevy or a, mm. whatever they were driving. It was an older car. And they were standing in between the two cars. And so the headlights of the Mercedes were still on, and it was illuminating them. And so I could see them moving around, but they were using the front end of the car for cover, but they were coming out and shooting at the offices. And, you know, you could see the muzzle flashes of the guns. Mm -hmm. And there's another thing. At the time, we thought they had two pistols. They only had one. And, but we were seeing two muzzle flashes. And what we were seeing was for them lighting the bombs. That was, Jeff just took out a lighter uh, to show me exactly what we were seeing. And these bombs, were they pipe bombs or were they the bombs that were similar to the ones used at the uh, finish line? The they were throwing pipe bombs and they had a pressure cooker bomb. The pressure cooker bomb. And like I said, when I first came around the bend, one of the pipe bombs went off. 
And as I was coming up between the houses to confront them, that's when they threw the pressure cooker bomb. And that was like an unbelievable bang. Uh, it was like a mushroom cloud of gray-white smoke. It just like a mushroom cloud. Included in that gray-white smoke are, I would imagine, shrapnel of de- yes. deadly kind. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's what killed uh, Martin Richard and the other people. Right? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. they, they put pieces in nails, glass, pellets. Pure evil. Pure evil. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually felt some of the debris come down raining over my head. Mm. You know, and, and I'll tell you, that stopped me in my tracks. I was like, wow, what mm. is that? But, you know— Split second, you get your senses back. I continued going forward, and like I said, I could see them in front of the in front of the Mercedes. The, the headlights had illuminated them. So I drew my pistol. I actually had it out at that point, and but they didn't know I was there, and I was probably about twenty yards away. They didn't know I was there, so I had all the time in the world. They're, they're focused on the other officers that are out there, and I was off to their left side, and I just drew my pistol. I took took my time, squeezed my shots off, and I fired three or four rounds, and I'm saying, I know I hit him. I know I hit him. But there was no reaction whatsoever. Hmm. None. <clears throat> and it turns you know, adrenaline and whatever else. But I, Do you recall hitting which one now? Uh, I, at that point, I you didn't, didn't know. know I didn't point. know which one was which. I want to recall the fact that you're a firearms instructor. You're very good. In fact, you were telling me earlier that you you nailed a in the FBI training uh, post. You nailed a very high score, almost perfect. Almost, yeah. Pretty good with with a weapon, so we know that. So here you are. You're shooting back at them. Do they now turn to shoot at you? Because well, they didn't. Like I said, I was getting no reaction. After firing three or four shots, and I was aiming for the torso, center mass, mm. and like I said, it's 20, 20 yards away or so, and I fired handguns at 50 yards, uh, and years ago when I first got on the police department, I used to have to train at 25 yards, from 25 down to three yards away, and they've since modified that. You don't have to shoot any further than 15 yards. With that, I'm saying, let me try a couple of other shots. Like I said, they were being illuminated, so I could see their feet and ankles from the location I was in. And I don't know where I got the training. Or I don't remember where, but I remember skip shots where you bounce a bullet off the pavement. Now, that's something I would not even heard of before. Yeah. That's high-level yeah. training. Yeah. Skip shots, like skipping a rock on a pond? Yeah, well, what happens is, and I know you people can't see this, but I'll, that's okay. I'll use doing... my hands and gesture to you. So I'll help out if I need to describe What it, it is is you fire the bullet, it comes down, and a lot of people think it then does this. Ricochet up? It doesn't go like that. It comes down, and it will travel at this height. You're basically saying it comes down and then very low loft elevation, it yes, ricochets. It six, doesn't go high in the six, air. Six, eight, ten inches. So you're going for the feet at that I'm point? I'm going for the feet. Ah. And it turns out, after all is said and done, the uh, the uh, district attorney, I had a meeting at, after everything was all said and done in the autopsy and trials mm. were over mm. and everything. And <clears throat> a couple of my bullets did hit Tamalin in the feet. Now, that didn't stop him, though. No. That's when he realized where I was. Okay. And what he did is he came, he left that position of cover that he was in, and he came running up the street, and he was shooting at me. And there was a, about a four-foot chain-link fence, and then there was a car in a driveway. He came running up, and he was on the other side of the four-foot chain-link fence from me. We were about six feet apart from each other. And him and I are shooting at each other. Uh, exchanging on fire, and at some point I reloaded. I I know I reloaded, but I don't really remember thinking about reloading. Just for clarification, what are you using? Um, use, I was using a Glock 40 caliber pistol, which has a magazine round of how many? Uh, that had, I believe, 13 rounds. In okay, it. okay. Well, you you had already squeezed off quite a few, right, to try to stop them. So right. I imagine you did reload. And yeah, you said. yeah. I know I reloaded while he was on the other side of the fence, six feet away from me, shooting at me. Mm. And then he his his gun stopped shooting. I remember him distinctly looking at his gun, and I didn't know if it jammed or he was out of ammunition. I didn't know what he, what he was 
doing, but he, I remember him distinctly looking at the pistol. He looked at me and we looked right at each other. He threw the pistol and hit me in my left shoulder. Hmm. And then he turned and he ran back down the driveway, the five or six feet to the, to the sidewalk, took a left and started running towards the officers that were further up, the sergeant and the patrol officers. And now by this time, a couple of more officers had arrived. Some officers that had been Watertown officers were working a detail with, I think it was the gas company in Newton. They had come down. So, And then we started having you know, uh, some other officers starting to drift in. But w when he started running, I holstered up and I chased after him and I tackled him. And I brought him to the ground. And with that, Officer Reynolds and Sergeant McClellan came over and we're trying to get handcuffs on him. We, you know, we, we're trying to, and he's still actively resisting. And at this point, I'd shot him nine times. Let's examine what you just said. You shot him nine times. You go for the middle of the body, the torso, right? Yes. To try to stop an assailant. Was he on drugs or something? Was no. he high on, or is it just adrenaline? Adrenaline. There Man. were no drugs in his talk screen. Interesting. So we, we got him onto his stomach, and we're trying to handcuff him. And like I said, he's still actively resisting us. And, you know, and he was actually a little slippery because there was blood everywhere. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that's when... Joe Reynolds, he was facing, he, his, the, where he had come up from, he was facing down where the two cars were, their, their two cars. And Joe said, Sarge, Sarge, the other guy's in the car. He, he's, he's coming at us. And gave a quick look, and I saw headlights. And we're trying to, now, McClellan backs off, Reynolds backs off, and I look, and I grab Tamlin by the belt, and I'm trying to drag him out of the path of the car. You know, we're not executioners, we're going to mm. take a prisoner. Right. So with that, the next thing I know, I look over, and the headlights are right in my face. I, I literally let go of Tamalin, and I fell down backwards. I just dropped my body weight to, backwards. To save yourself from being yes. run over. That, that vehicle missed my head by about an inch. I felt the breeze of that vehicle go by my face. And that vehicle then ran over the assailant. Yes, he did. And was he dead at that point after that? No. He survived that. He was still he right. was still uh, alive. What happened is is uh, the younger brother Zokar drove over him, and I'll tell you, I saw it might be a little graphic, but I saw the front wheels go over him. Like I said, I was just dropping myself mm. back, but my head was up watching, and then I saw his him bounce between the pavement and the undercarriage a couple of times, and then the the rear wheels went over him. He actually got dragged a little bit by the rear wheels, and then they went over him. And then Zokar crashed into one of our cruisers that was parked there, stopped. And, you know, you hear the engine racing, and this is just all going on fast, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's just going. You could hear the engine. He's, you know, he's trying to break free of the collision. He broke free of the collision, and now, like I said, other officers were coming from other agencies and stuff. And then there was a barrage of gunfire as he went through the intersection of uh, Dexter Avenue and Laurel Street, and then the hunt was on for him. With that, Reynolds came back, McClellan came back, and we got Tamalin handcuffed. Then an officer gets on the radio and says, Officer Down. That was the MBTA transit officer, Donahue, Dick Donahue. Oh, yes. They yes. found him in the driveway. He had been shot. Oh, yes. Um, <clears throat> and so everybody just left me. <laughs> and I'm standing there. And Tamalin is handcuffed. He's on his stomach, but he's still alive, and he's still trying to move around. So what I did is I just stood there, and I put my foot in the small of his back and held him there. Right. And I got on the radio, and I called for—and uh, I remember say, distinctly saying, you know, uh, we need an ambulance to Laurel Street. Have one in custody. He's been shot and run over. Repeat, shot and run over. And— they said, okay, an ambulance is on the way. Again, I want to mention the fact that the ambulances responded. The doctors did what they do because that's their job. You did what you did. And you tried to save him from the car, which is important to mention. Yeah. And, and what happened is, is as the, now the ambulance had been staged, the dispatchers had staged the ambulances to start responding and set up in a, an area, in a safe area around the area. Mm. So the first ambulance shows up, it's the Watertown Ambulance. Uh, from, run by a fire department. So they were not told about the transit officer being shot, but they were going by where he was. They flagged him down. That ambulance was meant for me, for, for my 
well. for my incident. But like I said, they didn't know that right. that it, they, they get over here. We got an officer down, and then a second ambulance, which was a, a Boston ambulance, took our Tamalin. Uh, Want to just rewind for a few minutes? And when he was shooting at you, obviously. You had some angels on your shoulders, and you were unscathed, but those bullets were everywhere, bullet holes in the house that you were backed up against. Yes. That speaks to the erratic behavior of a criminal and you know, shooting a gun wildly, right? I mean, he was not a trained marksman as you were, thank Cor- God. Correct. And that's what we see with gangs all the time, wild shootouts, you know shooting sideways, doing all this nonsense, and then bullets are sprayed everywhere. They often miss their target. Yeah, hit innocent people, And hit innocent kids and innocent people. Yeah. Wow. This is still early morning on Friday. Correct. And you must be buzzing. Adrenaline must be flowing like the Nile River. What did you do at that point? Did you have to go back and do reports? Uh, let me just continue with a little bit there. Oh, sure, sure. Well, while, while I was standing there with my foot in Tamil's back waiting for the ambulance, my cell phone rang. It's in my shirt pocket. And I said, oh. I look at it. <laughs> and it's it's home. It's the wife. <laughs> yeah. And what had happened is now it's like about 2 o'clock in the morning, 1.30, 2 o'clock, somewhere around there. And now I have, I had three brothers that lived in Alaska. They had moved there back in the 70s uh, when the pipeline was starting. And one of my brothers was going to bed around 10 o'clock. So he was watching the news. And what's all over the news in Alaska but Watertown, Massachusetts, his hometown. So he called my wife and said, is Jeff there? And my wife says, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know. She's in bed sleeping. She goes, he's not beside me, but he might have went out with the guys and had a beer after work. You know, that's not unusual. He'll do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. So he sh- she says, why? So he says, Watertown's all over the news. She goes, Watertown, Massachusetts, all over the news? He says, yeah, put on your TV. So she put on the TV, and she sees what's going on. So I answered the phone, and she goes, where are you? <laughs> I said, I'm busy. I can't talk. <laughs> she goes, are you in Coolidge Square? That's a business district that's near where this transpired. And apparently somebody said Coolidge Square somewhere along the line, whether it was on the news or my brother or whatever. And I said, look, I said, I'm very busy. I just shot somebody. I'm okay. I'm call you when I can and I hung up on her. <laughs> Hi dear, I'll be I'll be with you in a minute, but I just shot somebody and I got to get back to that. Yeah. Uh, wow. Like I said my foot's in Tamalin's back, but you know, once I saw it was my wife, I had a, you know. Of course. And then from there, you know, all the cavalry starts showing up and Boston EMS, I think it was a Boston EMS showed up as the second ambulance uh, and took Tamalin and they, they, they showed up, they started cutting his clothes off, and I remember, you know, be careful, we don't know if he has any explosives. Right. And they put him in the, in the back of the ambulance, they worked on him for a little bit, and then off they went. And then at that time, myself and all the other officers, our chief had showed up, and he says, you guys are out of commission. Yeah. You, you know, it, you're, you're being put on administrative duty. You're not going to continue in the manhunt for the younger brother uh, because you were involved in a shooting. So with that, they decided they were going to set up a command post at the Arsenal Mall, so we all had to move over there. And, geez, I think it was about an hour later, about an hour, hour and a half later, the Boston EMS guy showed up, and they were looking for me. And they, they said, he died, but you shot him nine times. Well, you didn't know how many times you At the time, I didn't. Right. I didn't know, but they told me I had shot him nine times. Including in the feet. Well, yeah. Which had to have slowed him down a little bit. I would hope so. Jeez. So I, I always wonder, because uh, what's going on in your mind at the time and how you deal with it, the stress, the post-traumatic and all that, what kind of administrative leave, what does that mean in terms of your several days following? What what did you do? Well, what it is is uh, administrative leave. You, you're still getting paid. It's not like you're suspended or anything like that without pay or anything. You just You're not allowed to work the street. You're not allowed to work in overtime. You're not allowed to work a detail. Um, and they brought in that day, another part of it, this, that, that morning they brought in, the, brought in the Boston police stress team to talk to us that morning. So mm-hmm. we finally left the Arsenal Mall, the, the officers that were involved in the shooting, and the command staff stayed behind at the mall at the command center. And we had to talk to the Boston police stress team they want to make sure we're okay mentally. And 
Then they brought us over to St. Elizabeth's Hospital. They wanted to have us examined by a physician and a psychiatrist, which, you know, they checked us out. And, well, I think that's appropriate after yeah. something like that. What about the media attention at that point? Were you besieged shortly thereafter? No, believe it or not, I, I actually thought the media is going to be setting up in front of my house, which never saw anything, never. Mm. So, uh, and then after that, you know, I remember when I got to the hospital, you know, they're checking me out physically, and my hands looked like I had red rubber gloves on. It was all his blood was just, mm. you know, and they, they had me go over and scrub up. And when I had tackled him, I had scraped up the heels of both my hands. Mm -hmm. They were bleeding, and so they, they uh, you know, gave me, I had to take anti-AIDS medication for a month. Oh, my gosh. Uh, because they didn't know if he had any, of course. you know. Um, we fi I finally made it home around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I had been up since like 6 o'clock on Thursday morning, and now it's 2 o'clock Friday afternoon. I finally made it home. My wife's there. One of my brothers, one of my other brothers was down from Alaska. He was visiting. Oh he was God. staying at my house. My son was there. Um, and you know, naturally, I'm barraged by the all three of them. And so I finally said, look, i got to try to get some sleep. I'm just exhausted, both physically and mentally at this point. And so my wife followed me upstairs, and I'm taking my uniform off, and I have to realize it's all dark blue. So I take my take my shirt off, and my shirt is all red with blood. I take my trousers off. My undergarments are soaked red with blood. Mm. Now my wife is freaking out. You're hurt. You're hurt. I said, no, I'm not. I'm okay. I'm okay. I didn't realize it was all his blood. His my, blood. Yeah. yeah. But my wife was out of her mind thinking I was hurt, and I didn't realize it. It's so interesting, almost 10 years later, but uh, people were panicked. People were really frightened. The terror, which is what terrorists want to bring, was real. This was real. And then it, it came to our own backyard, in this case, a backyard near your house, yeah. near your home, near yeah. the police station. Remarkable. The question is, if you've never killed a person, what that feels like. But in this case, the person needed to die, I think, or needed to be stopped. Any second thoughts? Any second um, no, you know, you brought up, you know, to believe that, you know, killing is not a good thing to do, to do mm -hmm. which I don't believe for the most part that people should just be walking around killing anybody. However, it, it does not haunt me. The only time I really think about it is when I hear it in the news or for some reason, like the appeal that the younger brother is filing to get the death penalty. Uh, uh, he, he got that stimulus check. Oh, yes, yes. For those who don't know, Zaniyev, the younger one, got a stimulus check during the COVID thing. Crazy. But um, I, I think your, your story is, is so important to share because it really illustrates the sacrifice that police officers make every day, not always life and death, but every day. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your philosophy of policing, where things are today? I mean, we've been through a tough couple of years for the, for the police. Yeah, it, it you know, it, it's amazing. I, I, I truly believe in community policing. I really do believe in it. it. It's a great, great thing for people to get to know their police officers in, in their community. And, you know, I, I know we ran a community, uh, a Citizens Police Academy. I was the assistant director. One of the captains was the director. And, you know, we've probably had at the time, now that money's not there, they're not doing it as often anymore, but we've probably had four or 500 people go through our Citizens Police Academy over the years that we've ran it. And people come out, do ride-alongs, you know, they get to see, you know, they can go up and see how the detectives operate. They go out in the car with the police officer. And it, it really worked, but then all of a sudden, everybody hates the police now. I, I don't understand, you know, what has gone wrong. It, there's just so many people that are anti-police in you know, we're not there to be the enemy. You know, we're there to, to help you. You know, I, I don't know how many times, you know, I've, I've done CPR and brought people back to life, uh, you know, or, or, you know, put hold people when they're mangled. and. Well, you talked about your dad saving that suicide attempt and, yeah. and bringing her back from the dead. And that's going on every day in so many ways. And it's not always, again, life and death. I mean, police do so much to protect us, to comfort us. I, I agree. Uh, I think it's changing. And one of the reasons it's changing back is because crime is going through the roof in many of the major cities. And we realize how important and precious police 
protection is? Yeah, well, that, that's some some of these major cities that have defunded the police mm-hmm. are now refunding the police. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's amazing. You know, th- this is something that that really means a lot to me. Is and, and I believe it's attributed to George Orwell, but you know, I, I read this many many years ago, and, and it really made an impact on me. You know, good people sleep soundly in their beds at night because there were brave men and women out there willing to sacrifice their lives for them. Hmm. And that's exactly what police officers do. Exactly. Uh, Firefighters, EMTs, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, the people who step up when the rest of us are in our beds snuggling and very safe and warm. Absolutely. Well, uh, one more fun question. You know, you get this all the time. They did a movie called Patriot's Day. Mark Wahlberg was the star, and it was a big major motion picture. And you got a chance to meet the guy who's playing you, who's one of our best character actors, J.K. Simmons. What was that like? Oh, he's he's a great, great guy. Um, Him and I have formed a friendship. Uh, He he rode around with me for probably 30 or 40 hours in a Mm. cruiser. Mm -hmm. And I took him and I trained him how to shoot a firearm, and we still in, we're still in contact today. That's uh, nice. Yeah, and you're talking that was what 2015 or 16 when mm-hmm. we were filming the movie, mm-hmm. and we exchange Christmas cards, call each other on our birthdays. Uh, That's anytime nice. he comes to Boston, he calls me and we go out to dinner. That is nice. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because, well, it's fun to talk about movies, but when you, you know that there's somebody portraying you in a film, it's not the same thing, obviously, as what happened, but it's as close as they can get it. You want to know that somebody's taking the care and time to get it as right as possible. And he's a he's a terrific actor. I mean, everything he's in, I, I even his insurance commercials I'll watch. <laughs> You're a very humble guy. You didn't ask me to come on. I asked you to come on. Thank you for sharing a bit of this. Any book in your future, do you think? You know, I, I keep getting told I should write a book about my career on the police department. You know, all the incidents that I can remember over the years. But I wouldn't know where to begin with something like that. Well, your story is known to everybody in this part of the world. In fact, probably around the world because of its its amazing drama. And you've trained hundreds of people in firearm work and it the master himself had to, had to use that jeff uh i want to wish you the happiest of retirements you probably wouldn't have hung up the badge at 65 if you didn't have to am i right about that you are correct i could tell i could tell yeah. you're a you're a true gentleman thanks for joining us on the podcast uh, thank you for having me jordan a real honor to have jeff puglis retired watertown police sergeant and a true hero to whom we owe our thanks my appreciation to those who make the podcast possible, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions, where we produce this one and many other podcasts. And you can find out more at jordanrich.com. Do check that out. And thanks for subscribing and downloading, also rating and reviewing this show. Till next time, remember to be well so you can do good. This is Jordan saying take care. <laughs>